Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher Sarah Perry. Hi, folks. This is Sarah Perry, and welcome back to Haven Space. Today, we are going to be discussing hematophilia or hematolagnia, which translates literally to blood lust. We're going to be talking about blood fetishes. By the end of this podcast, you should know a little more about the fetish, what it is, what it isn't, what we know about it, where to find it, and how to go about making this happen for yourself with all of the consent, respect, and pleasure our bodies are worthy of. Now, this is a sexual fetish for blood, In some of the definitions I found, people feel like it is specifically relating to the taste and the drinking of blood, but really as a general consensus, these terms refer to blood as part of the play that someone enjoys. Um, And it is a sexual attraction, something that literally turns somebody on. Now, there are different kind of things that fall inside of the umbrella of hematolagnia, and some of those are things like period blood play, things like cutting, things like vampirism, literally biting, um, things that involve a little bit more violence or BDSM. And other people can have blood fetishes and not really be so related to pain. They could be related to things like the um, flowing of blood. And we're going to discuss this in a little bit. Today, I'm going to be focusing, though, on the attraction to blood itself. I'm going to leave menstrual blood and all of the fetishes relating to menstruation for another podcast because that's a whole subject in itself and we could go on and on about it. This fetish is particularly common when it comes to blood on the body itself instead of blood on its own. While some people, and we'll discuss them in a little bit, are kind of clinically diagnosed with like clinical vampirism and may enjoy the actual drinking of blood and may get blood from blood banks, this is more related to something outside of the ritual of drinking blood and what blood may represent. Let's remember that in many cultures and many traditions throughout our entire planet, the idea that the blood of a creature can feed you, nourish you, can be drank, and you can imbibe the person or the being's energy is super common. We still have rituals in some Asian countries where we drink cobra's blood, for example, for sexual appetite. And we have other areas where as a form of like war tribute, you would kill an enemy and then consume their blood or parts of their body. These types of rituals are not so much related to the sexual attraction and being turned on by blood and consider them something very different. They get muddled in the rhetoric and the research because Blood play is so impactful, it is so triggering for people, it's so easily um, pathologized into something that is violent that a lot of the literature really shows that and it shows that we cannot keep our own opinions and our our own biases outside of our research. So always keep that in mind and as I go forward explaining some of the research that I was able to find, which is all super... Um, medical, then let's understand and break down why these are the results that these studies are showing. 
It's often accompanied by licking or drinking the blood after something has caused the blood to occur. Um, a lot of times through bloodletting, which is, of course, the ancient tradition or the old-timey tradition of cutting someone and allowing their blood to flow out. Most of the time done in medicinal ways. We used to think that people had poisoned blood and that blood had to be released. We didn't think that it could self-clean, in fact, resulting in a ton of infections and blood-borne illnesses and blah, blah, blah. Other ways to do it would be like biting or needle play. Um, and all of these things are actually really difficult to find online. More on that later. So this does lie within the term, the BDSM umbrella of edge play, simply because it is uh, something that could innately be dangerous. A lot of people enjoy using instruments like knives and scalpels. Um, the scent, sight, and texture of blood in streams of blood is something that kept coming up repeatedly by people who expressed interest in these fetishes. Blood has a very specific smell. The taste is very metallic. Um, I wonder, and I couldn't find any, but I wonder if anybody is interested in finding if the people who enjoy the taste and the smell of blood are people who have naturally low iron, for example, because blood has a metallic taste. It does have iron in it. So are we kind of on some physiological level attracted to something that our body's lacking so that we can actually consume it and then want that? The same way that someone may crave um, a glass of water or may crave lemon. So our body's kind of asking for what it needs and maybe what it needs is something that can be found in blood curious about that. But not everybody who enjoys blood play likes blade and cutting play. So remember that. Some of the people, like I mentioned earlier, are people who don't actually want to hurt someone. They are comfortable with other ways blood flows. In an interview that I was listening to, um, somebody really enjoyed nosebleeds and they would make their own nose bleed, but they enjoyed, they found it sexually gratifying. The bloodstream itself, sexually satisfying, um, sometimes replaced with um, blood like wine, a lot of times in images and pictures, or even as part of their play, the attraction is to the look of blood and it has a similar um, kind of look to it. Even though if you're looking for sight, texture, the scent, you're not going to get that from wine, obviously. And mind you, playing with dark colored wine is going to be really messy, likely messier than blood. Um, like I mentioned, period sex can be seen as blood play and that's kind of a less painful way. Period sex can be extremely satisfying because of the added lubrication that's already built in. But Sometimes the focus is not so much on the blood itself, but on the instrument. So there's some type of blade worship if there is a blade. People who innately don't want to hurt a partner, people may not necessarily be sadists that want to hurt somebody and may choose to use extremely, extremely sharp devices such as like medically or surgically sharp razors because they like the idea of blood, but they want to be as fast and as um, painless as it can be for the partner or for themselves. Some people prefer the ultra sharp stuff really because you could be less prone to um, kind of like overexert your hand and then end up cutting yourself or slipping. Um, they are also, uh, they hurt less, like I mentioned, but they also make more precise cuts. So if you are only interested 
in a very thin line that then ends up healing much better. These medically sharp devices could be the way to go. Remember though that medically sharp devices are medically sharp and are meant to go very fast and very deep. So having some expertise about that is something that you'll need to do. In fact, you can go online and you can look up classes um, on certain networks like FetLife and they actually teach workshops and that is the best way to get started with any kind of blood play if you are going to be using something to break skin, of course. Um, Sometimes some people are actually excited by using the sharp object and then they feel an attraction to having that type of control. Notice these patterns of uh, arousal with fear and arousal with like that fight or flight and arousal that's sexual because they're coming from that same part of our brain that is saying, hey, pay attention, something's going on and tune all the way in. This is something that we've seen in a lot of different fetishes. Additionally, there may be attraction to the exchange of power, the power differential between the cutter and the cuttee, um, or the dynamic of having someone be submissive and having someone be dominant and being over-controlling this person and this body, and that the person trusts you enough to allow you to perforate their skin. That can be additionally arousing. There is, of course, also a link between the color red as intrinsically linked to arousal and passion. It can become very triggering for some people, especially when contrasted against very pale skin. If you spend time online and look at images of blood fetishes, it's very, very uncommon for darker skinned people to be in these images. I think simply because the visual of dark red blood on pale, pale, pale skin is part of the attraction. The impact of the color is a huge part of this fetish. And then again, we see over and over again that people have images of blood in any orifice. So coming out of their eyes, their noses, not just genitals, but also genitals. And the attraction about where the blood is on the body could be part of what someone's turned on by. In one of the case studies that I found, the person said that they enjoy that kind of metallic taste and that certain things will trigger the thirst for blood. And some of those things are like chewing on the back of a pencil with a metal eraser casing because it has that flavor of the metallic, the metal, and it ends up bringing up those memories and having this person think about engaging in blood play. Now let's talk about the difference between blood play and clinical vampirism because it's blood play is the arousal of being around blood, not actually drinking it. Clinical vampirism is ten, tends to be related to wanting to consume blood and feeling like there's a specific reason that you should consume blood. Not just, I like it, I'm turned on by it, this is what I want to be doing, but the idea that you are compelled to drink blood because of one reason or another. For example, the fact that you feel that you need it to survive or you feel that you need to drink people's energy force. So when we talk about a lot of the studies that have been done about um, blood play fetishism, it's really related to clinical vampirism and it's related to forms of psychoses. And, and this is not the research we need to be doing about sexual behaviors. We don't need to be pathologizing people's behaviors by taking the example of the one person with mental health disorders who had trauma in their life and then spreading it to every single other person. So 
I want you to keep that in mind as I go through some of these studies, okay? Clinical vampirism was named Renfield Syndrome in 1992 by a psychologist named Richard Knoll. And Richard Knoll really enjoyed the idea of breaking down how people develop fetishes for drinking blood. The first records we have of sex play with blood is actually in narratives dating back to like the 1860s. It makes it very strange for me that while this narrative is coming up during like basically the exact same time of the birth of psychology and the pathologization of sex and sexuality, um, I mean, we're talking literally 30 years before um, Psychopathic Sexualis was written by von Kraft Ebing and broke down basically quote unquote normal sex and abnormal sex. And still clinical vampirism and blood play and blood fetishes are not in the DSM-5. They are not and have never been in the diagnostic and statistical manual. And that to me is really interesting because it was happening around the same time and it seems that there should have been a lot of attention on it, but whatever. It, clinical vampirism and Renfield syndrome is believed to be a form of psychosis. Um, it's been linked to early life events with trauma, with violence, um, with sadism and masochism in non-consensual non um, atmospheres. Um, and it is based on a three-phase model. This three-phase model says that um, initially, a child may have some kind of contact with blood, possibly through violence when they were a child, possibly through injury, where they either felt, touched, um, tasted blood. And this was all related to an event in their life that was somewhat traumatic. Not necessarily traumatic in the way that would cause like you to become attracted to it, but to where it would create enough arousal in your body that you now link blood to the idea of feeling aroused, stressed, um, elevated, whatever you want to call that state of mental awareness. Then the second stage would be um, to start to become attracted to blood in other creatures, but start with smaller creatures, potentially drinking or killing or torturing creatures. And then the final stage would be moving on to people and relating it to other people and potentially becoming violent. So here's a quote from Psychology Today. According to Knoll, 1992, such desires are found funded in severe childhood abuse. The child may engage in auto-vampirism, tasting his own blood, and during puberty. These acts are eventually sexualized and reinforced through masturbation. So what they're saying is you start liking something and you start you know, getting off to this idea and you create this pattern of you do this while you're masturbating, so then you're training yourself to be more turned on by this thing that you're doing. Um, and then it goes on to say a progressive paraphilic stage during adolescence is sexual arousal, eating animals, drinking their blood, which is called zoophagia, and then masturbating while doing this stuff. So of course, if you're torturing an animal and killing it while you're masturbating, you're telling your brain this is hot. This is sexual. Recognize this as a sexual thing. Essentially training yourself to like this. So he goes on to say that the fantasy-driven sexual nature of this paraphilia creates a very dangerous adult. Now, okay, Noel probably needs to calm down a little bit. Remember that most of the case studies that we have of this type of fetish that we get to put our eyes and ears and papers on 
are cases that come from criminal cases. So just by definition, we're already picking from a pool of people who have committed criminal acts, right? So keep that in mind. In 1985, an issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry, Dr. Hickey says uh, this um, serial killer that lived in Germany called Peter Curtin in the late 1880s. He grew up in an abusive home where his father raped his sisters and his mother. He eventually engaged in raping his sisters himself. And then by the age of 18, is literally being taught by a dog catcher how to masturbate while torturing dogs and other animals. Um, he goes on to eventually kill nine women, um, all of which he um, killed, tortured, while he was sexually gratifying himself, um, not necessarily raping them, but stabbing them repeatedly while masturbating, um, doing all types of things. And his MO changed, you know, like sometimes he would stab people just a few times, sometimes it was over and over and over. And then during his um, talks and his interviews with the police, he was actually saying, well, I sometimes took longer to orgasm than others, so I had to stab them more times. So he was literally um, wanting to watch their blood flow. Um, and he, would, he was known as like the vampire, and he would suck their blood and drink their blood, and he was killing and sucking the blood of all these animals. And he is um, cited as having like vampirism, hematolagnia, which is what we're talking about, necrophilia, like wanting to sleep with dead people, and then erotophonophilia, which is being sexually turned on by killing people. Now, I want you to recognize, though, that most people that rape people are not sexually turned on by rape and violence. They're people who want control, and the part of their brain that lights up when they are engaging is not the part of their brain that is like, this is sexual, it turns me on. It's a part of their brain that wants dominance, control, focus, right? So this is, we're talking frontal lobe decision-making, cognitive development. Like they know this is gonna create a consequence. This is gonna kill somebody. This is gonna potentially bring me to jail. But what they are looking for is the resolution of having accomplished something they wanted to do that someone didn't want them to have. So remember, when you're thinking about rape, when you're thinking about assault and murder, and when you're thinking about, Erotophonophilia, this type of stuff is not as common as we have made it seem like it is, right? Like people who are rapists most of the time are the jock at the college party that the girl said no to who drugged her and raped her because he wanted to, not because what was sexy was the rape, okay? Keep that in mind. Extremely important as we create a new culture of rape and acceptance and how we provide support for victims of rape and validate their experiences also. Now, like I said, all of this info is coming from clinical or forensic case studies. So yeah, these people are going to be bananas. Everybody that engages in blood play is not going to be Peter Curtin that eventually will grow up to murder a bunch of people. In fact, the BDSM community is full of a bunch of people who by design are doing things that as a society we've been taught are damaging, but have decided that they like it and have found partners that are very consensual and the partners like to be either injured or like to engage in blood play or in submissiveness. And these things are completely acceptable and can be really enjoyable under the umbrella of consent. 
So where can you find this? Um, you can get on Tumblr, you can get on FetLife, but even FetLife, which is for fetishes, considers this so taboo that they don't actually allow images that have any kind of blood play in them. So consider that FetLife, the fetish website for people to get together to talk about fetishes, where there are 446 groups that mention some type of blood-related content have the rule where you cannot post pictures with blood. So you're going to have to look for very specific terms online, literally look up blood play, literally look up blood porn. And if you just look at a regular porn website um, and you do a search for blood porn, the only blood videos that come up are blood relating to virginity loss. So think about that, right? Why is it that we consider consensual situations where people decide to play in blood, not acceptable, but the idea of losing a virginity, which is, by the way, completely fabricated and false, hymens don't even actually exist, you falsify a virginity loss, quote unquote, so that you can get an image of blood on a dick simply as a form of respectability play. The fact that you're playing on someone's purity, that's really, the fetish is not the blood. The fetish is the um, corruption of a person. So remember that when we talk about why we see the types of porn that we see, why that is the kind of porn that is acceptable and out there. And whether or not you want to think that porn is okay or is socially accepted, the truth is they are deciding what is too taboo for taboo, what is too fetish for fetish. So why would we do that when really consent is the key? So how do you do this? How do you prepare? Of course, you need to be safe if you are cutting people, if you are piercing people's skin because infections can occur because you can go too deep. So have conversations and have a safety plan in place about what's going to happen. Uh, have bleed arrest, have bandages, have sewing kits, have the ability to stop strong bleeding and proximity to medical care. And Again, like I've said a million times before, don't lie to your doctor. Doctors are used to all kinds of crazy stories. Tell them your crazy stories so that they can accurately help you with whatever you need help with. Especially if you're ending up in an emergency, going to the hospital, they don't know where you cut someone, what you did. So just go ahead and be honest about it and let that be that. Deal with the embarrassment after everyone's safe. Remember also that there's potential for passing bloodborne diseases. Um, there are certain diseases that can be spread through blood-on-blood -blood contact, so make sure that you know your partner or partners and that that's a conversation that's been had and that everyone's been tested. And lastly, remember to set up a system of consent negotiation at the beginning and then aftercare at the end. Have it already agreed upon what these things are going to look like, what they're going to be, so that you can then provide the best care for your partner and they can provide the best care for you so that expectations are on the table, so that you already know what hard limits are. And then establish a traffic light system so that when you're playing with something that can be so intimate, so dangerous, and so edgy, you can push your boundaries while still staying in a place of honoring and respecting yourself and what comes up for you in the moment. In these BDSM practices, being able to be comfortable stopping and going and urging and pushing yourself a little, but also being comfortable stepping back is a huge part of the negotiation. If you are not with a partner that you feel can respect those boundaries, it's best to find a different partner. 
to do this with. And like I said, you can get on FetLife, 446 groups that mention blood play. Find yourself a partner, find yourself a coach before you start playing with this stuff so that you can really do the best that you can. Um, and so to recap, we talked about hematolagnia, the blood lust and blood play. We talked about how it can be profoundly intimate, what there is to like, what there is not to like. We talked about the fact that the color red innately brings up and evokes um, ideas of sexuality and arousal. We talked about the representation um, in the porn industry, the representation in the fetish community. We talked about the fact that most of the case studies on clinical vampirism are actually coming from forensic reports and they're coming from criminal reports. And so it's difficult to actually find data that would make this um, give us some accurate information about maybe relationships to problematizing the behavior of enjoying blood during sex. We talked about how clinical vampirism and hematolagnia are not the same thing. We talked about how people's um, ability and thirst for being aggressive sexually is a different thing than the motivation that most rapists actually feel. And we talked about how to do this as safely as you can if you feel like this is something you want to try. Thanks for listening. That's all for today. And I will catch you next time. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.